2: or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: The Guardian Archive Long Read.
2: Hi, I'm Jessica Laudis, and my article is called El Chapo what the rise and fall of the kingpin reveals about the war on drugs. In 2019, I was living in Brooklyn right down the street from the Eastern District Court where the Chapo trial was being held. And I started going and very quickly became fascinated with the case and with the fact that so many issues were bound up in this one story. Chapo is was a major figure in the war on drugs. He was one of the largest cartel leaders in the world after Pablo Escobar, who he then exceeded. And this was one of the biggest trials of a cartel leader in history. And there were a lot of kind of extraordinary aspects to it. Chapo had been extradited. In Mexico, there was a lot of unhappiness about the fact that one of the major criminal figures of Mexico was being tried in the U.S., so there was a lot of tension around that. There was a lot of kind of braided meaning built into the fact that this was a guy who sort of represented the war on drugs, which has largely been a failure. And here is a guy who has been kind of flaunting the fact that it has failed for decades. In a way, the sort of irony of the Chapo case is, even though he's now in prison, it's not as if this has actually stopped drugs coming into the U.S. And in fact, the Sinaloa cartel has become stronger in the years since he's been imprisoned. So there was a lot bound up in this trial. And at the same time, in terms of how it could change some of the dynamics that it was seeking to change, it hasn't really made much of a difference. Early in January, one of the sons of El Chapo, He's thought to have around 10 sons, but he has four children with his second wife. Ovidio Guzman, who's known as the rat, was arrested outside Culiacán.
1: The Mexican city in the northwest heartland of the Sinaloa cartel has descended into a battleground. A reaction to the arrest of Ovidio Guzman.
2: Guzman, the younger Guzman, had been arrested several years ago. But there was such violence associated with his arrest that police eventually decided to let him go. So this was the second attempt to arrest him, and this time it succeeded. 29 people were killed. The city was basically turned into a war zone. And now he's being held in Mexico City, and there's some conversation about whether he's going to follow in his father's footsteps and be extradited to the U.S., although at the moment the Mexican government is saying that will not happen. I think his son being arrested is just another indication that war on drugs has not worked. The The example that people always talk about is a hydra, so you know, you cut off the head and another one grows, which is exactly what's happened with Ovidio Guzman. His father was arrested, is in a maximum security prison, and here you have the son who has just kind of stepped up and is now leading a section of the Sinaloa cartel and has overseen the transition from bringing cocaine into the states to bringing fentanyl and methamphetamine. So the failed scope of the war on drugs remains... A tragedy for Mexico, for the U.S. 29 people were killed. It's been a week since he was arrested. Schools in Culiacán are still closed. This is just an indication that the wheels continue turning, even though supposedly things are supposed to be changing. Welcome
0: to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read.
1: El Chapo, what the rise and fall of the kingpin reveals about the war on drugs, by Jessica Laudis. Just after midday on Tuesday, 12th of February, word came down that the verdict was ready in what had been widely described as the trial of the century. United States of America v. Joaquin Guzman Loera had lasted approximately three months. It took prosecutors that long to present what they described as an avalanche of evidence, which had taken more than a decade to compile. The government called 56 witnesses, The defense called only one, an FBI agent who finished testifying within an hour. There was little expectation that Guzman would mount a convincing defense. The diminutive 61 year old, his nickname El Chapo means shorty in Spanish, was known around the world as a leader of Mexico's Sinaloa cartel and the most high profile drug kingpin since Pablo Escobar. In addition to smuggling thousands of tons of cocaine, heroin, marijuana, and synthetic narcotics across the U.S.-Mexico border, he had successfully pulled off two dramatic escapes from prisons in Mexico. He has been the subject of dozens of books, two popular TV series, and, in 2009, was included in Forbes magazine's list of billionaires. The following year, That same magazine named Guzman one of the world's most wanted fugitives, second to only Osama bin Laden. As Guzman's lawyers liked to tell anybody who would listen, even before their clients set foot in Brooklyn, he had already been convicted in the court of public opinion. When he was captured by Mexican Marines on 8th of January 2016, Guzman became the prize feather in the cap of the country's law enforcement. Barack Obama called Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto to congratulate him on the arrest. And in a move that could be interpreted either as a parting gift to Obama or a peace offering to his successor, Guzman was extradited to New York on 19th of January 2017, a day before Trump took office. Jack Riley, a retired drug enforcement agency, DEA chief, who recently published a book about his role in Guzman's arrest, told me that in the view of U.S. authorities, catching El Chapo was an important warning to criminals around the world. Regardless of where you are, if you are breaking American laws, eventually we're going to get you. Americans spend around $109 billion on illegal drugs each year, and Bloomberg estimates that the Sinaloa cartel makes at least $11 billion in annual sales to the U.S., But while Mexican cartels regularly appear in the U.S. media, most people are unfamiliar with the circumstances that contributed to their rise. It is not common knowledge that Mexico launched its own war on drugs in the mid-2000s or that the biggest cartels are sophisticated operations worth billions of dollars. Nor are many people aware that cartels are increasingly responsible for fentanyl, a form of synthetic heroin, entering the U.S., In an address to the media after the verdict was handed down, U.S. government officials emphasized this point and the role of illegal fentanyl in perpetuating the opioids crisis. While the workings of his business may be a mystery, Americans have heard of El Chapo. By the time he appeared in court in 2018, he was a late-night TV punchline, a symbol of extreme wealth and an escape artist with a talent for leaving law enforcement with their hands empty. At the trial, Guzman was found guilty of all charges against him, including the most serious, having engaged in a continuing criminal enterprise. He was sentenced at the end of June, and his lawyers are seeking a retrial on the basis of jury misconduct, but the chances of that happening are slim. When I was in Mexico City this spring, a month after the verdict, talk of the trial had already died down. Guzman's image had mostly disappeared from the magazine covers on display at the news kiosks that dot the streets of the capital. While people could still name the Sinaloa cartel's leaders and lieutenants, they were more interested in the newer cartels, such as Jalisco Nueve Generación or the local La Union. Many people didn't want to discuss El Chapo at all. Narco-fatigue. The exhaustion that comes with being oversaturated by news and pop culture about the drug trade had long ago set in. Over the past 13 years, Mexico's internal war on drugs had dominated the media, resulted in the deaths of over 100,000 people, and failed to stop narco-trafficking.
2: The notorious drug lord El Chapo, who escaped months ago into that mile-long tunnel carved beneath his prison cell with full electricity and a motorcycle waiting tonight capture.
1: Guzman's arrest did not magically rid Mexico or the US of violence or drugs. Above all, his trial demonstrated how disposable any single person is in the larger machinations of the narco state. There's never been a clear definition of what exactly constitutes a cartel. And as smaller, more transient gangs replace larger organizations, going after leaders like Guzman seems increasingly pointless. Rather than reducing the levels of violence and trafficking in Mexico, that approach, the so-called kingpin strategy, employed by Mexico and the U.S., has enabled new forms of crime to flourish. As Ismael El Mayo Zambada Chapo's longtime partner said in 2010 in a rare interview with the Mexican news magazine El Proceso, the problem of narcos isn't going away. As soon as capos are locked up, killed or extradited, their replacements are already around. Since the early 1990s, the U.S. has targeted cartels via their leaders. It is a fairly straightforward idea. Take out the head of an illegal organization, and the rest will collapse. The approach was developed to bring down the Colombian cartels, and in that case it had some success. When Pablo Escobar was shot to death by Colombian police in 1993, his cartel went down with him. But even as the structures of organized crime have evolved, U.S. law enforcement has generally stuck to this top-down model. If they are not killing drug lords, they are using the American judicial system to make examples of them. Since 2001, when Mexico's Supreme Court agreed to allow the extradition of criminals so long as they would not face the death penalty or life in prison – this ruling was amended four years later to permit life sentences – dozens of narco-traffickers have been extradited to the U.S., including members of the Tijuana – Beltran-Leva, Sinaloa, and Los Zetas cartels. If Guzman ends up in the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, as he is expected to, he will share the facility with former Gulf cartel leader Osiel Cardenos Guyen. While Sinaloa has historically been, and still remains, Mexico's most powerful cartel, the world it came up in no longer exists. Between the early 90s and the mid-2000s, The Sinaloa, Tijuana, Juarez, and Gulf organizations were many monopolies, with borders that more or less stayed the same. Then, with the start of Mexico's drug war in 2006, that arrangement started to fall apart. As Mexican and American authorities took out cartel leaders, groups fractured, and new ones emerged. Previously, the Zetas, whose leaders came from the special forces of the Mexican army, had been a mercenary group in the employ of the Gulf cartel. Now, they became an autonomous organization. Jalisco Nueva Generación, which had been linked to Sinaloa, morphed into one of Mexico's most ferocious cartels. Splinter groups and gangs that had originated in prisons or, as local militias, began to gain power. This fragmentation altered the way cartels do business. To distinguish themselves in a crowded field, the new groups pioneered the use of sadistic, headline-grabbing violence. They also diversified. Whereas an old-school cartel might have once only sold drugs, the upstarts are expanding into different forms of crime. The Zetas are notorious for stealing petrol from nationalized pipelines and selling it on the black market, a business that Sinaloa previously dominated, as journalist Ana Lelia Perez documented in her book El Cartel Negro. The Santa Rosa de Lima cartel also specializes in petrol theft, known nationally as huachicol. Protection rackets are common, and cartels are kidnapping and extorting migrants on their way to the U.S. border. In 2010, the bodies of 72 Central American migrants were found on a ranch in the northeastern state of Tamaulipas. According to the lone survivor of the massacre, an 18-year-old Ecuadorian, The Zetas murdered the group when they refused to either pay for their freedom or serve as cartel hitmen. At the same time, older cartels are expanding and decentralizing. According to law and economics scholar Edgardo Buscaglia, Sinaloa has a presence in 54 countries, and Jalisco Nueva Generacion, one of Mexico's fastest-growing cartels, is said to have branched out throughout the Americas. Maintaining such operations requires a vast and diverse network of legal fronts and elaborate systems of money laundering. To illustrate this point, the journalist Diego Osorno recently noted that the most popular brand of milk in Sinaloa is made by a company owned by Guzman's colleague, El Mayo. The Sinaloa cartel operates on such a large scale, connecting manufacturers and distributors, bankers and businesses, and extracting money at each step, that there is no longer a single face of the organization. Buscaglia told me that if I wanted to see the sophisticated side of the Sinaloa cartel, I should visit a particular gated community in Argentina. I wouldn't find any gangsters flashing guns, he clarified, only the wealthy managers of the cartel's legal operations in that country. this fragmentation also means that cartels and low-level gangs are harder to police and prosecute. Paradoxically, there are also more mini-kingpins to capture. And once they are in the U.S., narco-traffickers can cut plea deals and help prosecutors capture their former bosses and colleagues. Captured Mexican narcos generally have few qualms about cooperating, A good outcome might mean a radically reduced sentence and half their fortune waiting for them on release. An even better outcome might resemble that of Andrés López López, one of the former leaders of Colombia's Nord del Valle cartel. In 2006, López had an 11-year sentence knocked down to 20 months after working with authorities. Now based in Miami, he has written three books about trafficking one of which was adapted into a wildly successful TV show in Latin America. His most recent book, which was also optioned for television, is a biography of El Chapo. I first went to the Guzman trial in early December, and began to go more frequently as a broader picture of cartel operations came into focus. In building the case, prosecutors approached it like a classic mafia roll-up, offering leniency to each captured narco and gradually working their way up the chain until they reached Guzman. As Miami defense attorney Joaquin Perez, who has represented many extradited narco traffickers, told me, it was a significant effort for a fait accompli. It also made for good theater. There were accounts of diamond-encrusted guns and Cocaine stash houses and fancy Brooklyn neighborhoods, million-dollar smuggling submarines capable of evading police radars, and elaborate schemes to outwit U.S. law enforcement. Week after week, witnesses described in intricate detail the inner workings of La Oficina, the internal nickname for the cartel. Its lavish displays of violence and wealth. Its complex transportation networks and how Mexican authorities were systematically paid off. In search of material, screenwriters and actors showed up at the trial. Tabloid headlines advertised the wacky world of the trial, and newspapers ran lists of its most bizarre disclosures. By the time the prosecution rested, after 11 weeks of testimony, jurors had heard from Juan Carlos Ramirez Abadia, a.k.a. Chupeta, lollipop, a formerly handsome Colombian kingpin who had undergone such extensive plastic surgery to stay in hiding that his face looked like a rubber Halloween mask, Jorge and Alex Sifuentes Villa, brothers and Colombian career criminals who had worked closely with Guzman, and Lucero Guadalupe Sanchez Lopez, Guzman's mistress and one-time accomplice. Jorge Sifuentes Villa described attempting to kill a man with a poisoned sandwich, and Alex told the jury that Guzmán had allegedly boasted about bribing former president Peña Nieto for $100 million. Peña Nieto's former chief of staff described this claim as false, defamatory, and absurd. Yet to many of the seasoned narco-corresponsales, the trial offered few newsworthy revelations. Everything that was astonishing to American audiences was not to Mexicans, said David Brooks. The U.S. correspondent for the progressive Mexican newspaper, Mexican readers were no longer scandalized by accounts of extreme wealth or violence. Besides sex and infidelity, which were of universal interest, Brooks told me that the stories that landed with his readers were ones that named names, confirming that long-suspected officials had taken bribes or worked both sides of the table. The more I spoke with the Mexican journalists, the more I became aware of the underlying issues going unaddressed in the courtroom. There were few mentions of the consequences of the war on drugs, which had led to the deaths of thousands of Mexicans. And because it was being held in the U.S., some saw the case as a finger in the eye of Mexican sovereignty, a serious injury to national pride. There was some irritation over the fact that Guzman was being tried, as several journalists grumbled, in a court where the judge couldn't properly pronounce his name. At the same time, nobody seemed to think the trial should have been held in Mexico, where the police and judicial systems were too weak to guarantee that Guzman wouldn't escape jail for a third time. Again and again, I spoke with journalists and academics who described corruption in Mexico as something like a tide, a force that grew steadily and drew everything towards it. Police were underpaid, Crime was lucrative, and the government was compromised by the cartels. Political corruption, usually through campaign contributions or by laundering money through public procurement projects, is standard. When I asked people in Mexico City about the enthusiasm surrounding the new president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who took office in December 2018, I often heard that his willingness to take on corruption was his main selling point. The basic problem in Mexico, Buscaglia told me, is that nobody is policing the courts. Mexico doesn't audit judges or prosecutors, and lacks independent monitoring agencies. Despite recent reforms to the criminal justice system, Buscaglia does not think that Mexico currently has the capacity or political will to execute major organized crime cases like Italy did with its famous Maxi trial in the late 1980s. There, Sicilian prosecutors indicted 475 mafiosi over a six-year period. That, he added, indicates the most significant difference between Mexico and Italy. Organized crime didn't infiltrate the Mexican state. It helped shape it. Politics in Mexico, Buscaglia likes to tell people, is the most sophisticated form of organized crime. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions
1: about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to
2: bluehost.com/slash-wondersuite.
0: The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question: If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's audio slash audiolongread.
1: Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. Did the state shape the cartels, or was it the other way around? The standard narrative is that the cartels infiltrated the state, blurring the lines between police, politicians, and traffickers. Others contend that government authorities exaggerated the power of the cartels in order to blame them for their own transgressions. it is possible some version of each is true. Either way, there is no single force in control. There has never been a hard divide between the state and traffickers in Mexico. In the 1920s, farmers began growing poppy to meet U.S. demand for opium, and after the Second World War, Representatives of what would become Mexico's Institutional Revolutionary Party, PRI, were rumored to have made handshake deals with smugglers, allowing them to export illicit crops across the border in exchange for a cut of the profits. The PRI was the de facto government for most of the 20th century. The novelist Mario Vargas Llosa once called Mexico, under the PRI, the Perfect Dictatorship, And during its tenure, politicians generally took a lax attitude towards the drug trade, regarding drugs as more of a health issue than a criminal one. By the 1980s, narcos had solidified their power by divvying up trafficking routes and letting groups run their own territories. At the time, cocaine trafficking was starting to become big business in Mexico. When the U.S. DEA began targeting Colombian cocaine distribution routes between the Caribbean and Miami, the cartels had found an alternative in the Mexican trampoline. Traffickers started moving shipments across the porous U.S.-Mexico border, and American officials redirected their attention to Mexico. From 1985 onwards, U.S. operations in Mexico became more aggressive following the kidnap, torture, and murder of a DEA agent by the Guadalajara cartel. With the Cold War receding, drugs replaced communism— as the enemy number one of the American people. The Americans did not find the Mexican authorities the most cooperative of partners in the war on drugs. By the 80s and 90s, writes the sociologist Luis Alejandro Astorga Almanza, it was practically impossible for society to ignore the unbreakable links between police and traffickers. Particularly in states such as Tamaulipas, Cops would moonlight as traffickers, and traffickers as cops, with the tacit blessing of local authorities and elites. Various governmental structures seem to have been born, captured by the illicit interests of their own creators, writes Carlos Antonio Flores Perez, a social anthropologist who studies the institutional protection of the drug trade. U.S. Army intelligence cables from the 80s and early 90s Reveal that American officials were fully aware that all over Mexico, officials, politicians, and state and federal police were in on the take. In April 1989, Miguel Ángel Félix Gallardo, the former police officer who founded the infamous Guadalajara cartel, was arrested. But, like Escobar, he continued to run his cartel from prison. That year, his most powerful lieutenants – one of whom was a young Guzman, assembled in Acapulco and were each assigned a territory. El Chapo and El Mayo took the Pacific coast. This kingmaker moment ushered in a new era and preceded yet another big shift. Instead of continuing to accept cash from weakened Colombian suppliers, Mexican narcos began demanding payments in cocaine so they could go into business on their own. Before long, they went from being couriers to distributors, which is far more profitable, and overtook their former employers as the world's biggest traffickers. While agreements between cartels and Mexican authorities had previously kept violence between the two at bay, by the late 80s, these relationships were strained. With the U.S. putting more pressure on the Mexican government to target traffickers, the old arrangements dissolved. Under these new circumstances, violence became common among gangs, writes Sinaloan historian Froelan Inciso, and a way of confronting the government. Still, it rarely spilled into public view. So the country was stunned when in May 1993, a Mexican cardinal was killed in a shootout between the Tijuana and Sinaloa cartels at Guadalajara Airport. Although it was later discovered that Tijuana sicarios had mistaken the cardinal's car for Guzman's, they were retaliating for a Sinaloa attack that killed nine Tijuana members, he was initially blamed. A nationwide manhunt was called, and with Guzman splashed all over the papers, he became a household name in Mexico. In June 1993, he was captured in Guatemala, extradited to Mexico, and later sentenced to 20 years in jail for drug trafficking and murder. But for the next eight years, until he escaped in 2001, allegedly hidden in a laundry cart pushed by a guard, Guzman, like Felix Gallardo before him, continued to run his business from jail without any difficulties. In the early 2000s, after Guzman's first escape from jail, Sinaloa began to expand. The organization moved into the markets for meth and fentanyl, and, as opioid addiction gained momentum in the U.S., Guzman approached it like a shrewd businessman. According to Jack Riley, the former DEA head in Chicago, between 2010 and 2014, the cartel increased the flow of Colombian and Mexican heroin because Guzman saw the prescription drug problem taking over. While this pattern played out across the U.S., Sinaloa's power and logistical strength were concentrated in Chicago, the main hub from which they distributed drugs around the country. Cartel operations were so well organized, said Riley, that you could hit a house with 50 kilos of heroin in it, and two doors down, you could hit a house with $5 million in it, and neither of the people running the houses even knew the other existed. Even as Sinaloa grew, Mexico was relatively peaceful. From the 1990s until 2006, Mexico's homicide rate fell by nearly half, reaching the lowest levels in its history. Then, in late 2006, everything changed. Just over a week after the conservative Felipe Calderón took office, following a bitterly controversial election that he won by a margin of just 0.6%, he declared an internal war on drugs sending 6,500 troops into his home state of Michoacán. To his critics, this new war on drugs looked like a bid to divert attention from accusations of election fraud. Calderón's announcement initiated what would become one of the deadliest periods in Mexican history. With billions in funding from the U.S., Calderón pursued his own version of the kingpin strategy, deploying the military to fight cartels and targeting their leaders. During his six-year tenure, 25 of Mexico's most wanted, two-thirds of the entire list, were arrested or killed. As cartels pushed back, extortion and kidnapping spiked, and the number of homicides reached an average of 20,000 a year. In this new atmosphere of fear, wrote novelist Juan Vioro in an essay about the era, 10,000 companies offer security services and 3,000 people have had chips inserted under their skin so they can be located if they're kidnapped. Despite this violence, Sinaloa seemed to receive less attention from the authorities than other cartels. An investigation by the U.S. broadcaster National Public Radio, NPR, reported that between December 2006 and May 2010, Sinaloa members were arrested at significantly lower rates than those of rival groups. A congressman from Sinaloa also told NPR that the government has been fighting organized crime in many parts of the republic, but has not touched Sinaloa. Explanations for this varied from low-level corruption in the armed forces to more elaborate conspiracies involving the government, accusations that Calderon told reporters were totally unfounded, naming various Sinaloa members that the government had arrested. In the next general election, in 2012, the PRI retook power and Peña Nieto became president. Although his administration retreated from the Kingpin strategy, in 2014, more than a decade after he had first escaped from prison, Guzman was recaptured and sent to the maximum security Altiplano Federal Prison. The following year, he escaped once again before he was recaptured for the final time in 2016. Mission complete, tweeted Peña Nieto. After a year of negotiations and intense international pressure, Guzman was extradited to New York in January 2017. If his capture had any effect on the violence in Mexico, it wasn't immediately positive. 2017 was the deadliest year in modern Mexican history, with a total of 23,101 homicides. It is not clear exactly how many of these deaths and disappearances were linked to organized crime, but scholars have noted that a culture of impunity certainly contributed to the violence. Less than 2% of homicide cases in Mexico result in indictments. By the time Peña Nieto left office in 2018, the number of people killed since 2006 had risen above 250,000, with a further 31,000 declared missing. Targeting leaders had fractured the cartel landscape, and new gangs were rushing in to fill the gaps. Drug trafficking and cartel violence affect both the U.S. and Mexico. But when it comes to addressing them, The U.S. government has typically strong-armed Mexico into following its lead. Long before the overt bullying of the Trump administration, American officials were known to pay little heed to Mexican sovereignty. Yet even when U.S. violations of that sovereignty pertained to the trial, they were rarely discussed in court. One notable example was the Fast and Furious scandal, which the judge in Guzman's trial explicitly barred from mention on the grounds that it would confuse the jury. In this staggeringly ill-advised scheme, U.S. law enforcement agents encouraged gun dealers in Arizona to sell to traffickers believed to be connected to the Mexican cartels in order to track the weapons and see where they ended up. The first part of this plan succeeded. Between 2009 and 2011, more than 2,000 weapons were purchased in the gunwalking operation, and it erupted into the news when a border agent was killed with one. A congressional review later revealed that ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, leadership knew that fast and furious weapons were heading to the Sinaloa cartel. An attorney general, Eric Holder, was sent several memos in 2010 notifying him that the Sinaloa cartel was buying them. An estimated 150 injuries and homicides resulted from the program. And one of the weapons, a Barrett 50 caliber rifle, was found in Guzman's hideout after he was last captured. Even in less dramatic instances, the business-as-usual of international law enforcement is fraught. Writing for El Proceso, J. Jesus Esquivel described the Guzman trial as having exposed betrayals, corruption, lies, and regular violations of Mexican sovereignty by DEA agents. Esquivel also zeroed in on cooperating witness deals that the Justice Department offered to certain traffickers, including Vicente Zambada Niebla, the son of El Mayo and Sinaloa's heir apparent. El Vicentillo was one of the trial's most anticipated witnesses. He was flown in from Chicago, where he had yet to be sentenced on his own trafficking charges, and took the stand in dark blue prison clothes. In a five-hour testimony that the New York Times described as a spectacular betrayal of his father and birthright, Zambada Niebla gave a detailed insider account of cartel workings, describing how the organization spent at least $1 million a month on bribes to police and politicians, and detailing a failed plot to use a government petrol tanker to transport South American cocaine to Mexico. For taking the stand against his compadre, as he politely referred to Guzman, the 44-year-old was promised a shorter sentence and a possible path to U.S. citizenship. Others were given similar offers. The Cifuentes brothers, who sent tons of drugs to cities all over the U.S., may serve less than 15 years for their cooperation. Even Chupeta, the Colombian trafficker who confessed to having ordered the killings of 150 people and to having personally shot one man in the face— may be free in 10 to 15 years for his testimony. In his plea agreement, Zambada Niebla also agreed to forfeit $1.37 billion billion to the U.S. government, although it is highly unlikely any money will actually change hands. Since narcos don't purchase property or open bank accounts in their own names, it can be difficult to locate assets, and if the money is in Mexico, U.S. authorities rarely bother to track it down. Of course, there is no public information about how many narcos are in witness protection or whether those living under assumed identities have managed to recoup some of their former fortunes, but it is not far-fetched to assume this could happen. On the 30th of May, a federal judge in Chicago sentenced Vicentillo to 15 years in prison. With time served, this leaves him with five years to go, which may be further reduced for good behavior. Outside the courtroom, away from the trial, the U.S.-Mexico relationship is also defined by a kind of mutual obliviousness on the part of each country's citizens. David Brooks, the Jornada reporter, told me there is still mass ignorance about what's happening next door. In Mexico, he observed, Trump coming to power reinforced every stereotype of America for the past hundred years. At the same time, while there are 36 million Mexican-Americans in the U.S., Americans are generally ignorant of what's happening below the border. One thing that has gone notably unnoticed, according to Brooks, is the victory of left populist Lopez Obrador. Since he took office in December 2018, Mexico has entered a moment of potential transformation, which, if the new president follows through on his promises, could reshape the way Mexico deals with drug trafficking. A month after the verdict, I met journalist Joan Grilla in the middle-class area of Roma in Mexico City, several blocks from the house where Alfonso Cuaron had shot his Oscar-winning film, and next to a Sinaloan seafood restaurant. Grilla had recently written an opinion piece rejecting the idea that Guzman's conviction was a victory in the war on drugs. To bring a real sense of justice, you'd need something like a war crimes tribunal, he observed. Grilla was building on a point that had been made repeatedly by members of the Mexican press at the trial. The case did not seem to acknowledge how the war on drugs led to thousands of deaths and profoundly altered Mexican society. There were mixed feelings in Mexico, Grilla added, not about whether Guzman should go to jail, but about what justice should look like, what closure his conviction could offer, and what the whole trial ultimately meant. This was the biggest trial in a drug war that has lasted more than a decade, and it didn't even take place in Mexico. No actionable evidence against any officials had emerged and guerrillas said most Mexicans were not particularly surprised to hear any of the corruption allegations that the case brought to the surface. El Chapo's capture did not have any impact on drug trafficking or consumption, and there is no reason to think his sentence will either. In 2018, a DEA report found that drug overdoses in the U.S. had hit record highs, and that cocaine and heroin use was on the rise. In Mexico, where drug use has historically been very low, the numbers are steadily climbing. In 2016, 9.9% of the population said they had tried illegal drugs, up from 4.1% in 2002. Moreover, under the leadership of El Mayo and Guzman's sons, Ivan and Alfredo, Sinaloa has continued to operate. Just as the trial was ending, Arizona officials announced the largest fentanyl seizure in history from a truck coming from Sinaloa Territory. And, in mid-April, a presidential candidate in Guatemala was arrested for accepting a bribe from the Sinaloa cartel in exchange for appointing their people to high-ranking government positions. What is changing in Mexico is the nature of violence. Kate Linticum, the Mexico City Bureau Chief of the Los Angeles Times, said that in the past several years, she has watched violence become more localized in small gangs and contract criminals with shifting affiliations. This has corresponded with a rise in narcomenudio, small-scale street trafficking and other forms of crime, including petrol theft. Because Mexico's petrol industry is nationalized, the robberies cost the government more than $3 billion a year. Since López Obrador made it one of his signature issues, Petrol theft has become a front-page staple. The thieves are usually associated with local gangs or cartels and are often assisted by Mexican petroleum employees. At the beginning of January, López Obrador shut off Mexican petroleum pipelines to stop smuggling, causing a national shortage that lasted for days. This enraged petrol cartels but burnished his popularity. A national poll found that more than 80% of Mexicans approved of the move. It is clear the public wants reform, but the question is whether López Obrador will be able to do anything about the corruption that has for so long hobbled the state, including parts of his own administration. Three days after Guzmán's sentencing, López Obrador visited Barreruato, the kingpin's hometown. Guzmán is by no means a popular figure in Mexico, But in Sinaloa, one of the country's most dangerous regions, t shirts with his face on them are sold in markets, and he is widely regarded as a local hero. In a state where the federal government is largely absent, El Chapo is credited, without any evidence, with building roads and providing social services. After he was apprehended for the second time in 2014, hundreds of people turned out to demand his release. During his visit, Lopez Obrador promised jobs to the town's young people and vowed to make sure that they would not be obliged to take antisocial paths. That was four months ago. The jobs haven't yet materialized, but it was the first time residents could recall a president visiting the region.
0: For more Guardian Long Reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash longread.